0: from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I wanna thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Text for today is from Acts 5 verses 1 through 11. Before I read it, you will notice that the fifth chapter begins with the word but, and any time that you see the word but in a text that we are looking at in scripture, it's always good to go back to what precedes it so you can understand where the transition is coming from and why. And in the end of chapter 4, what we see is how the believers in the first church in Jerusalem shared their possessions. How no one claimed private ownership of anything, but everything that they owned was held in common. And they would sell private property and pool their resources. And the text says, so that none would have need among them. Chapter 5 begins, but... A man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words... He fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband... Sold the land for such and such a price? And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us in this hour so that it meets us and convicts us and forms us and transforms us to be more like Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we come under his word. And that's why we desperately long for him to speak to us even now. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The lectionary, uh, the three-year cycle that mainline Protestants and Catholic communities often use to move through the liturgical calendar, uh, the lectionary does not include Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And, and that's interesting, I think. I, I think that's worth noting. The lectionary will let us off the hook with this text unless we choose it for ourselves, unless we read it on our own accord, unless we include it as part of a sermon series as we have done today. One of the resources I often use for sermon preparation is a website called workingpreacher.com. The website curates scholarly and and, and preaching commentaries on many, many texts from Scripture among the thousands and thousands of, of articles contained on their site. There is not a single reflection. There is not one commentary on Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. I think that's also interesting. I think that's also worth noting. It's not just that the lectionary leaves it out, but preachers also don't want to preach it. Preachers aren't preaching it. And there's probably good reason for that. In last week's sermon, we, we read about and talked about the formation, organization, and the life together of that first church that was formed post-Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. We read about how they would preference the I am-ness of one another— how they would acknowledge the existence of the other in that diverse and plural church as they mutually discerned what it means to follow their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We read about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. We read about how they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We read about how all who believed were together and had all things in common, they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. We read about how day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. But now, in Acts chapter 5, a controversy is brewing. The unity and the harmony and the habits described for us one chapter earlier now encounter their first point of dissonance. As a couple named Ananias and Sapphira sold property, they gave some of the proceeds to the common purse, but still hold on, but still rather held on to other bits of the proceeds for themselves. This decision, to be clear, was out of step with what was expected of them in terms of what it meant to be part of this Christian community. The events that transpire from this couple's decision to hold on to some of the proceeds are really quite shocking. After all, it's hard to think of Ananias and Sapphira as being evil despite what the text implies— they seem like good people, right? I mean, they're part of the church. They, they show up for worship. They go to Sunday school. They participate in the fellowship. Uh, they share in the breaking of the bread. They share in hospitality. They seem like decent and good church members. The fact that the consequence of Ananias and Sapphira's sin is actual, literal death is really, really unsettling. And for many of us, it stretches our theological imaginations. It stretches our theological assumptions about God, about forgiveness, about mercy, about grace. While not directly stated, we can imply that the God to whom we belong in both life and death is sovereign over the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. And I think it's also important to note that the community... The church did not exact punishment on them. Note that the community does not take their lives. They take instead a posture of nonviolent confrontation toward these two covenant breakers. The way of Jesus and the way of the church is nonviolent confrontation. When it comes specifically to Ananias and Sapphira, the church is not sovereign over their lives, nor are they sovereign over their deaths. God is. Keeping a a bit of money from the sale of the land seems reasonable enough. The punishment does not seem to fit the crime Unless, of course, we actually elevate covenant making. We actually elevate community. We actually elevate sacrifice to the highest position of Christian morality. What the text might be saying in this case is that these matters are indeed matters of life and death. To follow through on commitment. To let your yes be yes and your no be no. To recognize that being part of the Christian community means being a part of something bigger than yourself and even more important than your own autonomy and individualism. To accept that what I choose to do and choose not to do actually has impact beyond myself. To acknowledge that sacrifice is the way of the cross that the one who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead and who poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church is the one who will supply our every need, is the one who said, you do not have to worry. I am with you and for you, even to the end of the age. All of these are matters of great consequence within the Christian church. And there is accountability with the community. And there's accountability to God when it comes to matters such as these. Think of Sapphira in particular. She tells a lie to protect the scheme to withhold a portion of the proceeds And when the community seeks to hold her accountable, when the church seeks to hold her accountable and provides for her an opportunity to tell the truth, she refuses to confess her sin. And I want to let you know, I know exactly what that is like. Sure, we say prayers of confession like we did this morning, week in and week out. But when confronted with our sin, the way the leaders of the Jerusalem church confronted her, were prone to say, I've got nothing to confess. I, I, I don't have sin in my life. I'm a good person. And then to know, friends, to know in this text that she dies in her sin. She quite literally takes her sin to the grave reminds us that this actually happens in our reality and in our world too it reminds us that people do die while that ever confessing some of their sins against God and some of their sins against their neighbor. There have been and will continue to be people who will go to their grave consciously and unconsciously without having confessed the abuse they've perpetuated, without having confessed the roles they play in systems of injustice, even if it's just through apathy or indifference. They'll go to their grave without confessing hatred they have harbored. They'll go to their grave with lies they have lived by. They'll go to their grave with infidelity or theft or greed or idolatry or violence they have enacted. They'll go to their grave Being unresponsive to those who are in need, to Jesus in disguise. Friends, this morning on another impossible and tumultuous morning in our city and around our nation, as we continue to consider what it means as a church to receive our second wind so that we can be a second light people in these difficult days, I want to encourage us, and I'm including myself in this encouragement, to take seriously and to integrate within our own relationships with God and in our own place within the life of the church, the critical importance of accountability, the critical habits of self-examination, of self-awareness, and of confession. These Christian disciplines most definitely swim upstream in our performance and virtue signaling culture. A culture that says, look at me. Look at how good I am. Look at what a good person I am. These disciplines and practices also swim upstream in a culture that is more interested in blame than ownership and more interested in shaming others than self-awareness of one's own deficiencies and sins. We love as a society to rationalize and to self-obsess. I do not think that there's a more perfect parable for our time than the one Jesus tells in Luke 18. When he says that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector down in in the back. I fast twice a week. I give a a tenth of, of, of all my income But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his chest and saying, "'God, be merciful to me, a sinner.'" Jesus says, "'I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled.'" But all who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another in the life of the church, Jesus unequivocally presents the posture and disposition of the tax collector over and against the posture of the Pharisee. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. The Pharisee chooses performance and blame. Thank God I'm not like the tax collector who's really the problem. Instead of self-reflection and confession, taking ownership, taking accountability, confessing one's sins is what God actually prefers. I once heard this story about a man in Germany who came into a cafe for lunch. He goes up to the counter and he orders soup and a sausage sandwich and he picks out a high top standing table. He puts his wallet in his jacket and he and he hangs the jacket on a hook underneath the table puts the food on that table, and he realizes that he has forgotten a spoon for his soup, and so he goes back up front to the counter. He leaves his soup and sandwich on the table. He leaves his jacket hanging on the hook. As he comes back, he's shocked to see a stranger feeding himself from his bowl of soup. He scans the stranger up and down, and he noticed his, his darker skin tone. He thinks to himself, this, this man isn't German. He's, he's Greek or Turkish. He's not from here. And he thinks to himself, this, this foreigner is eating my soup. He cannot believe his eyes as to the, the brazenness of the stranger. But he thinks to himself, so be it. And he takes his spoon and he stands close to the table, close to the stranger, and he begins to quickly slurp the spoon alongside of the stranger from that same soup bowl. The stranger actually smiles at him and then reaches for the sausage sandwich and rips it in half and gives half of the sandwich to the man. He cannot believe it. He says to himself, First this guy eats my soup, and then he gives me half of my own sandwich. you got to be kidding me. But believing that he is the bigger person, believing that he's taking the high road, they finish the soup together, and he eats half the sandwich. As they finish the meal, the stranger extended his hand to the man And they shook hands and the stranger left. The man, then getting ready to go, reaches underneath the table and he discovers that his jacket and wallet are not there. And he says to himself, I knew it. That foreigner was a con man, a thief all along. I I tried to do something nice for him. And that's how he treats me, unbelievable. And and the man rushes uh, to the door to see if he can, can flag down the stranger who's taken, he presumes, his jacket and his wallet, but he doesn't see him amidst the crowd. And so he turns around and he comes back into the cafe where he notices a table adjacent to the one that he was just standing at with a cold sausage Sandwich and a cold bowl of soup sitting on top of it, and a jacket with his wallet hanging on a hook. And it dawned on him I was at the wrong table the whole time. I was wrong, not the stranger. how often do we actually ask ourselves, sincerely, honestly, maybe it's me. In your prayer life, and in times of meditation, in times when you're evaluating how you show up in the world, how often do you ask, perhaps I'm at the wrong table. Or perhaps I'm, I'm eating somebody else's food. Do you In your own life, have people who hold you accountable, who give who you give room and space to speak into your life, the way the leaders of the Jerusalem church spoke to Ananias and Sapphira, who will let you know when you're sitting at the wrong table? Where in your life do you need to shift from blame to ownership? Where in your life do you need to make the move from denial to confession? Where in your life do you need to move from ignorance to awareness? I want to close with this word from 1 John, the first chapter, verse 8. The writer says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and God's word is not in us. Friends, this is part of the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are indeed forgiven. Let us not be like Ananias and Sapphira and hide and deceive and withhold the truth. Let us not be like the Pharisee and position ourselves behind our performance, behind our self obsession and the tendency to blame others. Let us be aware in this moment, church. Let us confess when we are at the wrong table. And let us be willing to receive the forgiveness and grace of God, which will make us new, which will bind us together in unity within this body, and which will give us a second wind and brighten the light that we are called to bear for this church, for this city, and for the world. Amen. Thank you for watching today's broadcast. For more video content, I'd encourage you to visit our website, firstpressatl.org. We'd love to see you here sometime at the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street to join us for worship. Thanks again for watching.